Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. open in front of you. There's something about having the Word of God in your hands, just feeling it there. Um, I would allow for handheld devices. Wi-Fi is on its way, so if you're Wi-Fi dependent, you need a different data reader than you have. But I hope you have the Bible in front of you because it is from God's Word that we hear the Word of the Spirit coming to us. Um, I hope you have the Scripture in front of you, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. These are not uh, long verses, and in fact, this morning we look at only three words in these two verses. Uh, and so you could, in point of fact, memorize the three words but I hope you have God's Word open in front of you that the Holy Spirit would speak to you through His Word uh, this morning. We turn to the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, we are going to read this letter together in the coming weeks and months. We'll discover here a letter that addresses the challenges of Christian living and uh, Peter writing to these believers uh, encouraging them, challenging them to be faithful for Christ that their lives might count for Christ. Now, last week we looked at uh, Peter uh, sort of biographically, and what we saw was that Peter was an ordinary man whose uh, trajectory in the world was towards a kind of success. Uh, he had pretty much everything set. He had a business uh, that was a going concern, and so he was living what we might call an ordinary life, but one that was going to be a successful life, and then one day Jesus changed everything. Jesus came to him by the seaside, said, Peter, follow me. Peter's life then is thrown into a crisis. How he answers that invitation will change everything in his life. And Peter, of course, got out of his boats, went and followed Jesus. And for the rest of his life, he grew and learned what it mean, means for Jesus Christ to be Lord of his life. And so he came to the invitation of God's grace, had his life changed. Now, in particular, we looked at that passage where Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, Satan has decided that he wants you. In fact, Satan has asked that he can have you for a while so that he can shake you up and sift you like wheat, just shake you around and tear you up and separate you out. Now, Jesus already knew that, uh, that this was going to happen, and he knew what was going to happen. He said, but Peter, I have prayed for you. And so when you return, as in I know you're, you're going to blow it, but when you come back, then I want you to help your brothers. Peter said, no, no, Lord, never happened. Jesus said, well, in point of fact, before the morning comes, you'll deny me three times. See, Peter had been there in the um, situation of falling short of the believer he ought to have been. 
And so we see Peter here who had learned a wonderful lesson that though he abandoned Christ, Christ never abandoned him. And though his life stumbled, Jesus was always there to pick him back up again. Peter experienced the ups and the downs of life. He experienced the faithfulness, the constant faithfulness of Christ. And so Peter, as the author, uh, we know, uh, can write as somebody who knows where we are. We can see where Peter is coming from, and it's exactly the same place we are. Uh, He's not writing from some ivory tower. He's not a theoretical theologian. He's not coming with uh, ideas and notions out of the academics of a classroom. But Peter comes writing this letter as one who is in the trenches of the battle for the kingdom of God. He comes writing as someone who can show you the scars and the wounds and the bruises of having been in the forefront of the fight for the gospel of Christ. Peter comes as one who has experienced this aspect of Christian living. It should come as no surprise then that as he writes to these believers, he is writing and encouraging them to faithfulness, that is to follow through on their life with Christ. Christians find themselves in conflict And Christians find themselves colliding with their world. And here Peter gives the call to faithfulness and obedience in the midst of that conflict. And so that's uh, where we are. Let's read the verses together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, someone sent out by Jesus. Peter, someone who's experienced this life. He's writing about it from the inside. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That is the sermon there. Three words, elect exiles of the dispersion. This is how Peter chooses to describe his readers. Now, he could have used other terms. He could have said, my fellow workers in the gospel— He could have said, my brothers and sisters in Christ. He could have pointed to words that that would talk about the grand fellowship that is ours with Christ and with one another in the context of the gospel. He could have used a lot of other words, but the Holy Spirit led him to use these words that talked about being chosen by God, but a foreigner in the world who is on mission, dispersed, scattered abroad, in the world. This is how he describes them, and it's how we need to understand ourselves as well. So we begin. Peter says, I'm writing to those, to you who are the elect. Peter knew that what had happened to him had happened to them. Peter knew that just as he became aware of his sinfulness, and the degradation of his life, just as Peter came to understand his absolute need for a Savior, so too these readers had experienced the same thing because that's the only way you're brought into the family of God. He knew that just as the Holy Spirit had impressed upon him the severity of his sinfulness and the absolute inadequacy of his own righteousness, so too these readers had experienced the same Holy Spirit bringing them to the same conviction. And just as he had cried out to Christ for salvation, he knew that the Holy Spirit had moved these readers to cry out for salvation. In other words, Peter knew 
that out of his magnificent grace, these readers had come to understand that God sent his son to save sinners. That word elect and election, there's a lot of talk that goes on about it, but at least it means this. We did nothing. We did nothing to add to, augment, initiate our salvation. See, it's not the case that we sent a delegation up to heaven, got a committee together, they went up to heaven, asked to talk to the Father, said, Father, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are sinners down on earth. Really? I had no idea. Well, yeah, yeah, if you look it up, it's, it's true. Google it. And, um, and what we've decided is that we need, somehow, we need to be saved. Really? That's an interesting idea. Well, yeah, we thought so too. And here's what we have in mind. Why don't you send your son down to earth to die in our place? Great idea. No. We cared nothing about God. We cared nothing about salvation. We cared nothing about pleasing the Father. But he sent his son to die for us. Election, if, if it, whatever else it means, election means that before we were born, before we were created, before earth and time began, God in the depths of his counsel purposed to save us in Christ Jesus. And so when Peter says, I'm writing to those who are elect, he's saying, I'm writing to those whom God has selected out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his dear son. And it's not because of anything we have had to offer, but it's solely by the grace and the mercy and the love of God. It is not the case that we cling to Jesus, and if we can hold on tight enough, he'll bring us into heaven. It is rather that Jesus clings to us, and because his grip cannot be broken, we have assurance that he will bring us into heaven. I write to the elect, Peter said, because no matter what you're going through, before you got there, God already knew about it. He already chose you to go through it, and he already provided a way for you to be victorious in it. Even before you were born, God was designing the universe so that you might be for the praise of the glory of his grace in Christ Jesus. We experience that when the Father sends his Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see our sin and open our hearts to love the Savior and opens our mouths that we might confess him as Lord. This is an important um, meaning of election. We are the elect. And that means that God's purposes are being worked out in us without fail. We cannot bypass, frustrate, eliminate, defeat God's plan for his glory. It also means that for our salvation, he deserves all the praise and all the honor. It means that when we think of how did we come into the kingdom, we're only going to talk about God the Father working in his Son by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's all we're going to talk about. See, we are convinced of our unworthiness. We're convinced of our incapacity. We, we know that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Or as Paul says, it is like a pile of dung, if we may be polite. So keep that at the forefront of our thinking. You know, that this all begins in the election of God. 
This all begins because of what God has decided to do and what God wants for us. And one of the things this means for us is this. If it is true that when we were sinners, Christ died for us, and it is. If it is true that when, that when we were hostile and enemies against God, opposed to God, not wanting anything about God, he chose us, and it is. If it is true then we, that when we wanted nothing to do with God, he decided that our lives would have everything to do with him, and he changed our lives in Jesus Christ. If that happens because God decides it happens, and it does, then how much more once we have known Christ as our Lord and our Savior and we are walking in the Spirit, how much more can we rely upon the sovereign grace of God to pick us up when we fall, to encourage us when we're downtrodden, to take us when we think we're nothing but failures and to work a great, mighty work of success in us? How much more? I think this is what Paul meant in Romans 5.11 when he said, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is our confidence, not in us, but in the God who chose us, the God who elected us. And so we are the elect. Uh, now, just think about what that means. Uh, we are the elect of God. Doesn't that sound preposterous? You know, we are the elect of God. Sort of sounds like we're in junior high school, and we're the beautiful people. We're the popular kids. We've got a little club, a little clique, and you know, we, we keep secrets from everybody else and laugh at everybody else. Yeah. We are the elect means that we are in slack-jawed amazement at the grace of God, that he would choose us. It means that every moment of our lives, we are just blown away by the magnitude of what God has done for us as we are we're sinners and as we are totally and completely dependent upon him. You see, when we say we are the elect of God, we're not talking about us. We are the elect of God. We are talking about God. We are the elect of God. It's an amazing thing, just an astounding thing that comes to us. So we are elect by God. And here's what that means and why it's, it's, it's so comforting. You may have stumbled in your Christian walk. Maybe not. But I suspect there's at least one person in this room who has stumbled in their Christian walk. You may, may have hit a spot where you, you just tripped up and fell flat on your face. And in fact, you may have stumbled so often and fallen so often that you're starting to give in to this crazy notion that God's through with you. And you're starting to think things like, why can't I ever get this straight? I, I try to live for Christ, and I keep coming back to the same old desires and the same old lusts. I keep coming back to the same habits. I keep doing the same thing with my mouth, and I keep using the same language, or I keep being abusive, or I keep being insensitive. 
I try to live for Christ and the love of God is just not in me. I, I just, I, it, it just doesn't work for me. And you started to believe the lie that God has nothing more for you. You're the elect of God who chose you before the foundation of the world and he will never let go of you. He will never be finished with you. The one who put his Holy Spirit into your life to begin this work will bring it to completion by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the one who decided that he wanted you to be his ambassador and his representative will not abandon you in some far-off field, but is with you and walking with you. And every time you stumble and you start to wonder how often this can happen, the hand of God reaches down and picks you up again. We are held firmly in the hollow of his hand. So that's what it means. God chose us even though we are unworthy. And though we sin and we impair the blessings of God and we frustrate the flow of the Holy Spirit into and out of our lives, yet God never stops. You remember the parable of the prodigal son. This was the boy who went to his dad and said, Dad, I want my inheritance. He took it off to a far country, spent it wildly, and uh, when he came to a senses, he realized he ought to go home, went home. Dad saw him coming down the road. That's why it really ought to be called also the parable of the patient father, the parable of the forgiving father, the parable of the father who every day went to the gate and looked down the road for his son, the father who never, ever gave up, though his son tried his best to. That's the God who has chosen us. That's the God who has elected us. You know, and so God puts something in front of you. He says, Here, here's what I want for your life. Here's how I want you to glorify me. And you say, God, I can't do that. And you know, every time I try, I fail. And God says, well, I knew that when I saved you. I knew that when I sent Christ to die for you. You're not telling me anything new here. We are the elect of God, and he can do what he desires in us. So, this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're about ready to give up, Peter's writing to you because you are the elect. God chose you. And this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you cannot with certainty say that Jesus Christ resides in my heart, he has saved me from my sins, and he is Lord of my life, and, and he has done a marvelous work of changing who I am by the power of the Spirit. If you cannot say that, and yet you sense the drawing and the pulling of the Holy Spirit, this moment, respond. This moment, answer the call. So Peter says, I'm writing to those who are elect. Now, this word elect, you know, we'll, we'll let others figure out how to reconcile the election of God with the free will of man, and uh, we'll let others talk about how to to bring the concept of the election of God into harmony with the, the, the teaching of Scripture. And these are important things to do and things that, that we really ought to do in our thinking. But for now and this morning and this, this time and place, just understand God's election is about God's grace reaching out and bringing you to himself all because of what he desires for your life. So I'm writing to the elect, Peter says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. 
He's writing to exiles. Other translations are aliens. Other translations, foreigners. It says, I'm writing to people who don't belong here. The word basically means somebody who lives in a country where they do not have citizenship. Some of you have been there when you've traveled all over the world. You went to another country, and you set up a household, and that was your home. But when you got orders to return to the States, what did you say? We're going where? We're going home because there's the home where you live and the home around you, and that's a real home. But there is a larger home to which you belong. And as you were living in that other country, you were there as an ambassador. You were there as a representative. You were there as someone with a task to do, but you didn't belong there. That wasn't your citizenship. Folks, we don't belong in this world. Our citizenship is above in heaven. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Peter says, I'm writing to those who are exiles. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 11 about Abraham, uh, talking about Abraham who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and then out of Haran. And God said, uh, I just want you to travel, and eventually I'll show you the land where you belong. And the book of Hebrews says, but he was sort of an exile. He was an alien in these lands as he was traveling. The book of Hebrews itself talks about the Christian life as a journey, like the wilderness exodus journey of the children of Israel, that it's a journey of faith in a land where we don't belong, looking for the land that God has promised us for the promised Sabbath rest. It is a word that says that we are citizens somewhere else. Now, we have seen our home. We haven't seen all of it. But every now and then, the window cracks and the curtains are parted. You stand on your tippy toes. You look in the window, and you see the glory of heaven. Every now and then in our practice sessions here as we worship, the glory of heaven comes down and we get the teeny tiniest glimpse of what our home is like. We have not seen it all, but we have seen enough. And we know that we are on our way there. Now, Peter addresses these believers. He says, you're elect, chosen by God, but as a result, you are now aliens. You are now foreigners. You are unwelcomed in this world. They just won't want you here. You remember the children of Israel went to Egypt. They wound up there. They were there, okay, let's say 430 years. After 400-plus years or 400 years there, Pharaoh looked at the children of Israel, looked at the Jews, and he said, they don't belong here. That's 400 years later. After four centuries, Pharaoh said, they don't belong here. There's too many of them. They're going to outnumber us. We need to put them down. Let's kill their boys. Let's give them hard work to do because we can't have them here. They don't belong here. They're foreigners. So God sent Moses who came, and through the ministry of Moses, God removed the children of Israel from Egypt. He set them on a journey through the wilderness to the land that he would give them. But they were foreigners in that land, though they had been there for 400 years. Peter writes to those chosen by God who, as a result, are still foreigners in this world. Now, there have been times, there have been times when Christians have fought that the world was a pretty good place to be. 
and the church was respected and uh, uh, you know, biblical morality was sort of in the air and that kind of thing. Folks, just think about your world history. Whenever the church has felt comfortable in the world, the church has been dying and the gospel has been diminished and the influence of the word of God has been bypassed and ignored. We live in a world increasingly secular, increasingly hostile to the things of God. We live in a world that's going to look at us, and though we have been here for hundreds of years, for millennia, the world looks at us and says, you know, they really don't belong here. We really need to get rid of them. You are an alien. You are a foreigner. You are a stranger in a strange land that doesn't want you. Peter writes to them as elect exiles. Now, understand where this comes home for us. Don't be surprised when because of your faith, you're left out, pushed out, and kept out. Don't be surprised when because of your faith, people are quiet. Don't be surprised when because of your faith, you're denied because that's what the world is. That's what it's about. We're exiles in a foreign land. It shouldn't surprise us because we do not share the world's prejudices. We don't participate in the world's bigotries. We don't swallow the world's line that under the name of tolerance, you can be intolerant. We don't agree with the world that life is cheap if it's inconvenient to me. We don't agree with the world's materialism. We don't believe with the world that the more stuff you have, the better life you have. We don't agree with the world's values that somehow the things of earth and the paltry passing away things of life are going to fulfill us in some way. We don't agree with the morality of the world. We are out of step, out of sync, out of sorts with the world. And don't let it surprise you when the world pushes back and has hostility against you. Because as the elect of God, you are also an exile. You are a foreigner in a strange land. Now understand this. This is my Father's world. And I rest me in the thought that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And the day is coming when every rock on every hill will cry out the glory of God. And the day is coming when every river and every stream will, with its babbling and its rushing and the torrent of the white water, will be singing the praise of God. The day is coming when the waves of the ocean roar, but they roar forth the majesty of the sovereignty of God. The day is coming when all the stars in the sky and the sun itself will shine in order to illuminate the praise and the glory of God. That day is coming. And make no mistake about it, that day is coming when every, absolutely every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. This world belongs to my Father. But until that day comes, we live as aliens and we live in exile. 
Sin still runs rampant, inhabits every human heart. That's why we are born as children of wrath. But when that day comes, the world that cares nothing for God will be seen as belonging to him all along for his glory. We need to understand this. We need to have this clear in our minds so that we're not easily swayed by the world's mentality. We're not easily enthralled by the world's of values so that we're not taken in by the glittering of the world's fashions. We need to keep this in mind because as exiles in this world, we are children of the heavenly king. We are children of the heavenly king, and we are marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And so why is Peter writing this? I mean, why, why does he write to them? No. Dear friends, I'm writing to you because you're the elect exiles. He's writing to them because those believers of the first century are exactly like believers of the 21st century. He's writing to them because they were just as tempted to let the world have its way. They were just as tempted to forget Christ. They were just as drawn and, and pushed and pulled by the world as we are. And so as Peter writes to them, he's writing to us, to those who are elect and who are living in Exile. Jesus never changes. The hostility of the world will not change either until Jesus comes again. Okay. So we are the elect exiles, but there's one more thing to look at very quickly. Peter says, I'm writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Then he names the places of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all uh, places in uh, today northwestern Turkey. Um, about as far away from Jerusalem as you could get. He uses a word there for dispersion that is the word diaspora. Uh, diaspora is also um, an English word. Uh, it refers to Jews who do not live in the Holy Land. And in the days of Christ, in the days of the New Testament, the majority of Jews did not live in Palestine. The majority of Jews lived somewhere else in the Greco-Roman Empire. The majority of, of Jews were scattered all over the then known world, and that was called the dispersion. The technical term was, that is the diaspora. And so when, when Peter says, I'm writing to the elect exiles in the diaspora, he's saying, I'm writing to those who are the people of God who've been spread out and aren't in their homeland anymore, but they're spread out all over the earth. Now, you see, if you were a Jew at that time, being a part of the dispersion was, was a problem. See, if you, if you didn't live in, in the Holy Land, if you didn't live in Palestine, you lived somewhere else. And so when you went into that town, they weren't very much interested in having you there. As a Jew, you walk into town and your neighbor comes over and brings a, a little basket of muffins and says, look, I, I baked you some muffins. I even dedicated them to our local goddess. And wouldn't you like some muffins? And as a Jew, you would say, no, I really don't want those muffins. I don't eat food sacrificed to idols. 
Oh, well, uh, we're having a potluck dinner, dinner at, uh, at, at our local uh, uh, temple. We're going to celebrate to the temple to, to Zeus or, or, or Athena. And uh, wouldn't you like to come to our, to our community dinner at the local pagan temple? No, I can't do that. I don't believe in your gods. I believe in the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who? I believe in the true and living God. Your gods are no gods at all. And I got you for a neighbor. And I got you for a neighbor. And then the first time there's a famine, first time there's a drought, first time there's an epidemic of disease, what does the village do? They look for the Jews. Why? The Jews don't believe in our gods. They must have made the gods angry. That's why we don't have food. That's why we don't have rain. That's why we're sick. Let's go after the Jews. And there was persecution. You see, if you were a Jew scattered, dispersed in the diaspora of the world, you were fighting for your life. And you were fighting to raise your children in the faith of Abraham. It was a tough thing. It was a problem. And then you're looking at that and you're saying, why did God allow this? Why did God allow his people to be scattered like that? Doesn't make any sense. But then you recall that when the first Christians were pushed out of Jerusalem and then they were shoved out of Judea, and then Samaria wasn't even safe for them. Where did they go? They went to the uttermost parts of the earth. And everywhere they went, what did they find? They found a synagogue, a place where the true and living God was already known and already worshipped. They found a place that honored the Scriptures and the Torah. They found a place where the Messiah was already expected. And when they proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, is the Anointed One, is the Messiah, there was already there a garden that had been planted and had been cultivated so that God might bring forth fruit for the gospel. It was already there. Paul did this all the time. He'd go into a city. First, he preached in the synagogues. Some would believe, some wouldn't. Then he'd go to the Gentiles and preach to them. I mean, God kind of like knows what he's doing. You know, when he allowed this dispersion of his people all over the world, Nobody else could have figured it out. But God was creating gardens in the world's backyard where the seed of the gospel could be planted. Uh, Peter says, I'm writing to you because you're part of this dispersion. You've been scattered, and I understand that. But um, well, you remember the, the parable of the sower and the seed? Uh, th this is the parable where uh, uh, the sower is just throwing seed all over the place. Some lands on the path and some lands on rocky ground and some lands in the thorns and thistles and some lands on good soil and, and there's different yields and different growth that goes on. And that's, that's the point of the par parable. But do you do understand, don't you, that that sower was a little bit nuts because he was putting seed everywhere. Everywhere. And as a part of the dispersion of God's people, because you live in the diaspora, God is scattering the seed everywhere through you and in you. God has decided that we would be his ambassadors, that we would take the message of reconciliation, and that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. We are called to this dispersion and it is our privilege to carry the name of Jesus. Many will reject him. Many will refuse him. 
but some will embrace him when we live for Christ. It is our privilege to carry his name. And we don't know when, we don't know how many, we don't know how, what it will look like. All we know is that God is faithful to redeem the elect from among the nations. And he has chosen to give us the privilege of being the conduit through which the gospel goes forth in that regard. So Peter writes to them. He says, I'm writing to you because you're the elect. That's the confidence you have, the elect of God. I'm writing to you because you're exiles, and that's the challenge you have. You live in a world that doesn't want you, serving a God who does. And he said, I'm writing to you because you're part of the dispersion, and this is the great commission that you have, to live for Christ and to make him known. And when we understand that, when we keep that in our minds, we are the elect exiles of the dispersion, of the scattering. Then a lot of the Christian life then just begins to fall into place as to why it's so important. This, this is why it's so critical that we understand this. It's critical for our generation and it's critical for our corner of the world. It's critical for our families. It's critical for our life. And so we are called as elect exiles of the dispersion to live for the glory, the praise of the glory of God's grace in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the life to which God has called us. It's what we're going to be reading about in 1 Peter as we continue our study. But that's where we begin. It's foundational. It's at the very heart of it. Without this, the rest doesn't make any sense. Bow with me in prayer, please. And Father, how grateful we are for the expression of your grace that comes to us constantly. Father, how grateful we are that the majesty of your power and wisdom showered upon us through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that even when we blow it, you put it back together again. But I'm praying, Father, today that you would give us faithfulness. Father, give us a diligence about fulfilling who we are, glorifying you that you have chosen us, understanding and willing to face the opposition of the world, but embracing the great privilege of sharing Christ. Father, use us for your glory. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we sing, let the call of God's grace call you quickly and obediently for Christ.